scripture for today is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached to peace to you, who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you that we are able to come together as your body and praise your name and worship you and study your word, your message to us, that we be encouraged and equipped to go out into the world and share it to those who don't read it for themselves and know you. I pray for Kevin as he comes today and speaks um, from this passage. I ask that your spirit would use him and speak through him. Um, and I ask that you would soften all of our hearts, that we would pre be prepared um, to hear and to be convicted and uh, to repent and fall at the foot of the cross. We love you and we trust you with these things today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I think we still have some people coming in. So if you've got a seat near you, can you just kind of point your hand in the air so that people that are looking for seats can find one? That would be great. We appreciate it. Um, so uh, otherwise, if you're late, you can also come sit in the front row. Um, that's your punishment for being late. So um, no one laughed at that. I thought that was going to get a little bit of a laugh, but that didn't get anything. That, there we go. Thank you, Mario. <laughs> hey, so um, while you guys are grabbing a seat, I just want to kind of uh, let you guys know, like over the course of the last uh, few weeks, we've been talking about um, really this, this idea of identity and how uh, identity is uh, really what drives our worldview. It, it drives what we think of ourselves. It drives what we think of others. It, it, it drives how we treat others. It, it drives 
uh, who will be in the workplace, who will be as a student, who will be as a parent, um, who will be as a, a, as a son or a daughter or a friend. And, and, and what we're seeing as we, as we work through uh, the book of Ephesians is we're seeing this kind of this consistent theme of, of Paul kind of touching on different things that he wants the Ephesian church to know about themselves if they are truly in Christ. That if they are, are, are truly a, a follower of Jesus Christ and have submitted to him uh, by repentance and faith, that these are some things that are true of them, right? And so we saw in that first week that, that we're chosen by God if we are in Christ, that, that God chose to love us and called us out of our sin and our rebellion. We saw that he gives us sight to see and know who he is and to know who we are fully and, and how to live in light of that. And then, and then what we saw last week is that Paul says every human being starts off with the same uh, level playing field, and that's that unto God every human being is dead, but because of Christ you are made alive anew in him. And so Paul gives us a lot to chew on uh, theologically in in this first chapter and a half or so uh, in this letter. And so today he's going to talk about another way that our identity is being rooted and that that identity is being rooted in the family of God, which is what we would say here in the West or here in the United States, we would call it the church. That your identity is, is given to you by God, and, but it's rooted within your family roots, which are the church. And it has a spiritual heritage to it. Now, I consider this to be especially important uh, here in the South, especially for those of you guys that, that grew up in the South, uh, because many are proclaiming that we are in what are the, the dying embers of the, the cultural Bible belt here in the South. Uh, a, a Pew Research study was done a, a few years ago, I think it was two years ago, that, that showed that American participation in organized religion had dropped below 50% for the first time since they had started doing these surveys. So less than half of Americans consider themselves to be involved in some sort of organized religion. But at the same time, and this is what was particularly interesting about this study as I was, as I was looking at it, was at the same time, American interest in spirituality actually actually rose during that same time period, that it was somewhere hovering between 80 and 85% that Americans would claim to have some level of spirituality. But the, the interesting thing was, is that it was disconnected from any sort of church, temple, synagogue, mosque, that more and more Americans, while remaining or declaring themselves to be spiritual and having a belief in a higher power and that higher power's role in our lives, that they were disconnecting themselves from community and the community that was organized underneath that banner. And so primarily what the research showed was that Americans still had deeply entrenched beliefs about God, but had grown apart from community. And so I, I, the, the interesting thing is that all these people were writing blogs at that time, and some people were writing books, and they were at, trying to ask this question. It was like, what is causing the disillusionment between organized religion and the United States? And, and in particular, I found fascinating some of the things that people were saying about the church, right? They were saying things like, you know, the church was accused of being overly political, 
The church was accused of being unloving. The, the church was accused of being unwilling to engage on important issues of the day. The church was unwilling to spend their money to help uh, the poor and the destitute. And the list went on and on. How many of you guys have heard that kind of critique of the church at some point in your life? Yeah, a good majority of you guys in the room. How many of you guys have said that about the church at some point in your life? You can raise your hand. This is a safe space. Yeah, there we go. Okay? And so what's interesting is what was coming out in this study was a lot of what we see to be true about the, the, your, your neighbor, uh, your coworker, your friend, maybe your family member, or even maybe your own views of the church. And so what Paul is going to talk about in our, in our passage today is relevant for two reasons. One, the church still matters. And Paul is going to lay that out from us from a, from a theological standpoint. He's going to explain to you and I that if we are a professing follower of Jesus, that our identity is actually given to us by God, and that identity is rooted in the church, the body of Christ. To, to claim to be a Christian and a follower of Christ but not love Jesus' church is like saying that you are a part of your family but you hate your family. It's like saying you love your dad but you hate being around him. Right? And so this, this interesting dichotomy of, of what we are starting to derive and think about as we think about how we engage with the organized institution of the church and we see ourselves moving away from it as a culture, and yet what God says about it is that it is vitally important. Now, the second thing we're going to see is this. He's also going to talk about that since that identity in all of us is rooted in the fact that you are family to one another as the church, that that identity should lead us to strive for radical unity. That the, that the church both exists for one another, to love one another, to make much of God, and to be unified underneath the banner of Christ and what he has done. And so my, my goal this morning will be actually to introduce what is going on in the text, but then to make a charge with us for a few action items. So go ahead, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look again at the text that Kayla just read for us, starting in verse 11. Look at what, he, what Paul says. He says, therefore... So in light of these things about your identity, the fact that you're chosen, that you've been granted sight, the fact that God has made you alive for the first time ever, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. So it's fundamental if we're going to press forward and kind of encourage ourselves to, to rethink the way we approach community around us and, and rethink the way we approach um, our neighbors, our coworkers, um, our bosses, our, our fellow classmates, whoever we are consistently in contact with. We need to understand what Paul is saying right here in these two verses that is true of the, the Ephesian church, but really in reality is true of any human being if we understand what he said earlier. Right? And so this is what he says, right? He says, at one time, meaning this is no longer true of you, he says, notice these two things that were true of you, Ephesian church, before you came to know Christ. He says that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and that you were separated from Christ. 
And he goes on to say that you had no hope in God in this world. So this is key, right? Because what Paul is saying here is that Gentiles did not know God, and because they did not God know God, they did not have a spiritual heritage, meaning they had no kind of cultural marker that would connect them to Israel, meaning that there was this barrier between God's chosen people, Israel, and anyone that was not culturally Jewish. Now, not only did they have this alienation from the nation of Israel, but then he also says that they were disconnected from God, meaning that, that by definition, if someone is not a follower of Christ, what Paul is saying is true of us is that you face daily in your life cultural disharmony and spiritual disharmony. And guys, this shouldn't be that hard for us to see. I mean, if you look and read the, at, at, and read the Old Testament at all, what you will see is Jewish treatment of Gentiles, that was anyone that wasn't Jewish, I would, I would coin it as racist. Straight up. Now, some of, some of what they did was biblically given to them and how they lived, but some of it was just cultural arrogance. Right? It says that Jews believed in a cultural superiority that started with God, but also extended to the fact that they just thought they were better than everyone else. They thought that as God's chosen people... Right? They were better than others. And I, and I know that we're making a sweeping generalization here that not every Jew that ever lived in, in the last four to 6,000 years of human history was, was culturally racist. But as a whole and as a society, they were. Specifically in the leadership of the nation. Jewish citizens were taught to at best be culturally intolerant of what they considered to be the barbarian cultures that were not Jewish. This led to a refusal of fellowship or being around people. Uh, it led to uh, refusal to marry outside the Jewish tradition, which was actually a Levitical law, but it, but it led to relationships being broken. It led to blatant racism. And ultimately, Jews believed that having a relationship with a Gentile could contaminate them and make them unclean. Meaning it was safer for them to not interact with anyone that was not like them. Now, some of you guys are young in here, so you may or may not know what I'm talking about, but how many of you have ever heard the term of the Christian bubble? Yeah, the, the church in America has done this in many ways. And in response to things like the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s and the, the, um, the, the, the rise and increase of uh, celebrity culture and whatever else, one of the things that the church did was retreat. And they created these fortresses and these big buildings that had everything you'd ever need in it, like a gym and a movie theater and a, and a great band and, and all these different things. And, and so the church retreated, and what they did is they completely disconnected themselves from the culture around them because they might fall into the trap and sin and become unclean much the same way that Jews did. And if you study Jewish history at all, you can see this distinction even in their place of worship. Right? If you went to the temple, the, the Herodian temple, right, what you would see is an entire temple compound which was considered holy, but it became increasingly more holy the further you went into the temple. King Herod had enclosed the outer court with colonnades, and it was referred to as the court of the Gentiles because non-Jews were not allowed... Were, were, they, were, they were actually permitted to enter the temple area, but they could not walk within the area that was reserved only for cultural Jews. They, 
And if, right, they went into that place, they were excluded from entering into the inner courts, and there were actually warning signs on the walls of this 10-foot wall inside the temple that said to you, if you were a Gentile in Greek or Latin, it was placed and gave a warning that the penalty for trespassing was death. I actually looked at it. One guy, one historian said that the sign was actually more like, if you enter in here and die, it's not our fault. It was the, the legal version of a, a, a disclosure agreement that they weren't held accountable for your death. And so what, what happened, right, is even within the center of religious worship for Israel, the place where people were supposed to come and worship the true God, there was a distinction made based upon race and culture. And that distinction, not surprisingly, right, caused issues, not just spiritually, but also in relational aspects between Israel and the other nations. I mean, can you imagine, right, if you are living in the first century in Israel and you are not Jewish and you've got a friend who's Jewish and you develop a friendship with them. And they say, why don't you come to the temple with me, but you can't come in all the way and worship with me. You got to stand on the outside. Is that going to make you feel invited and loved and welcomed? Or is it going to make you immediately feel that there's a barrier between you and God and you can't really know God as well simply because you were born in a different place in a different environment? The thing I find fascinating is that we aren't that different some 2,000 years later even within the church. Our walls look different than an actual physical wall within the temple but we still have them, right? Let's just think culturally here in the United States. What are some of our walls? Race, education, socioeconomic status, politics, hobbies, and even theology, right? That these things inevitably become walls and barriers to unity within the body of Christ and what ends up happening is that as, the, as a human race, we are naturally attracted to people who are like us, which when inevitably then allows us to form these little pockets and groups that create division. When I was in college, somebody uh, once asked me a question that has kind of stuck with me over the course of probably the last you know, eight or nine years. And they said this, Kevin, what is it about someone else that causes you to say that person is like me, they're, they're on my team or they're a part of my family? What is it about my friends? What is it about my roommates? What is it about my coworkers? What is it about someone else that when I look at them and I think about who they are, that is our bond together and unifies us together. Maybe it's common education, maybe it's political, maybe it's race. Inevitably though, those things that we use to answer that question create walls of division inside the church unless it's completely connected to the gospel. Anything that's not tied to the gospel creates a wall of division by God's design. Now, here's the question we need to ask ourselves, right? As a church, are these walls of division what God wants of his church and what he wants us to do as his people? Or does he seek a higher calling for us? 
Is the church supposed to look different than Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians screaming at each other? If you're a Green Party member, I love you too. Right? It is, is it bigger than black and white and brown and yellow and whatever other colors that our pigmentation might hold? Is, it, is, is God okay with us separating in those instances or does he have a higher calling for us? Is it okay to say, I don't want people in my church to be associated with me because they don't have the same socioeconomic standards that I do? And so I don't want to be surrounded by those people. Is, is, that, is God okay with that? And I think as I say this out loud, inevitably the easy answer to the question is what? No. Right? The easy answer to that question is no. But the, but the question that we need to really answer is not the, hey, no, don't do that. We need to know the why. Because the why of our identity is what drives us to understand why we have to fight against those natural proclivities in our own hearts. Right? Look at verses 13 through 22. He says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. There's a lot going on right there, by the way, guys. If you're not tracking... Right. Paul is basically saying your race isn't as important as your identification and being with the family of God. Let's keep going. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See all this language? It's, it's all familial. So you are in the family of God. The church is his family. They are his sons and daughters. And if you are in Christ, you are part of it, whether you like it or not. Look at what he keeps saying. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, meaning that cultural Jewish heritage does matter, but that the most important thing that binds us together is now Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, I think some of the most beautiful language in Ephesians is in those eight verses. I mean, there are nine things that Paul says are true of us if we are in Christ. If our identity is rooted in him, here are nine truths that we can hold on to. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's made us both one. So when he's referring to Jew and Gentile, he says that God has torn down that wall of hostility and brought you two together. Meaning that if you're a Republican or a Democrat, that wall of hostility can be torn down because of your common love of Jesus. He says that he's broken down the wall of hostility that was in the flesh and created one new man. Meaning that your first identification is in your spiritual family with God 
not your current situation here on earth. He says that he's made peace, that he's reconciled us both to God and to one another. He says that we are citizens and saints, members of the household of God, growing us together into his holy temple, meaning that we together as a family and a people are called to worship God and make much of him. Meaning that what makes much of Jesus is not a building like it was in the center of Jewish religion and history, but the people of God banding together to make much of Jesus. And then lastly, he says that we are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Look at this picture that Paul paints. It says, God reconciles. Meaning like, and and we see this, if you watch the news for longer than 50 seconds, you know that we have issues. And yet, Paul says, look, if you are in Christ, God reconciles all of that. He tears down all of those walls, that he reconciles us to the Father, but he also reconciles us to one another. And God is doing this reconciliation, this work of fixing this hostility, both to him and towards one another, in one place. The church. That that the number one agent of change for hostility in our world should be coming out of the church. That if anyone is trumpeting for for diversity and, and unity and togetherness and serving our world together, that the place that that should be coming out of is the church, the body of Christ. Because in verse 18, we now have access to the Father, meaning we have a new family identity. And because we have a new family identity with Jesus as the cornerstone and as our leader, we're built together by the Spirit, meaning that In everything we do as a church, we are unified in making much of Jesus and reconciling people to him and to one another. That that's the mission of the church, is to see people reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And the implications of that are that we die to what we think is the most important thing in this world, that our purposes are changed, our passions are changed, and our love for others is changed. So what does this mean, right? Okay, we've got the, the theological implications out of the way. Right? Paul says, your identity is in him, and being in him, you are part of the family of God, the church, the body of Christ. We've gotten that out of the way. And in that, the church should be working towards reconciliation, both of those who are far from God, reconciling them to God, and also reconciling us as human beings to one another. Meaning, these two things should be on the forefront of your mind if you are a professing follower of Christ. One, you should be vitally connected to the local church. And two, your church should be known for its unity even in the midst of its diversity. And if it's not, you should be helping lead the charge in that direction. Now, I know that when I start throwing out terms like unity and diversity and race, everyone in here has a different view of what I'm saying, and everyone in here is coming from a different angle. 
Okay? What I'm going to attempt to do as we're talking through this is to be as biblical as possible because what I've seen over the course of probably the last year and a half to two years, even from inside the church, is a lot of talk and not a lot of action. And that includes me. The primary place we fight for unity as a church is not our Twitter account or our Facebook page. If you think it is, you have missed the point. Right? The primary place we fight for these things is in relationships. So let's start with the first question I posed, though, that if what God says is true about our identity in Christ and being a part of his family, then we should be vitally connected to the local church. Right? Think of this. Paul says that we have access to the Father with Jesus as our cornerstone and because of what he's done. And that because we're connected to that family, the Spirit continues to do a work in you and I. Now, if you look, I want you to look at the last three verses with me, starting in, starting in verse 18. For through him, we have access in one spirit to who? The Father. All right, so put a finger up for me. We've got one there, right? Keep going with me. You'll see where I'm getting at here in just a minute. All right, so we have the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone of this family? Jesus, yes, thank you for the Sunday school answer. Yes, Jesus, right? So we've got two, right? We've got the Father and we've got the Son. Let's keep going. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by who? The Spirit. What do we see is alive and active in the church, the body of Christ, the Trinity. All three members of the Trinity are at work doing the work of reconciliation through what organization? The church. Through the family of God, all three members of the Trinity are at work. Meaning, reconciliation is done in the church. Now, I'm, some of you guys right now, we're gonna, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second. Some of you guys need to honestly ask yourself this question. Am I struggling in my life right now because I'm disconnected from a church body that loves me and challenges me and faces challenges with me? Some, some, of you, some of you guys need to, if you're taking notes, write that question down for yourself and pray about it and think through it. Because here, here's the reality. If you're lonely, but you're not being intentional about spending time with your family, that's why you're lonely. If you have marriage issues, a lack of accountability within the body of Christ contributes to those. If you're confused about who you are and, or who God is, why would you look for those places outside of the church? That's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about that Pew Research study that said that more people were spiritual than ever, but they were disconnected from the church. You're learning from yourself. You're, you're thinking up things on your own, meaning you, you are creating a religion that's what? Self-centered and man-centered. 
If any of you guys have kids in here, you know exactly what is going to be the, the implications of that. Kids love themselves. They do. They have to be taught not to. Every kid that's ever born thinks that they are the center of attention and the center of the universe. If anyone disagrees with me, you can come watch my kids at any time. I will gladly take the free babysitting to teach you a lesson. Right? Or you can go ask Josh Martinez in the back, who didn't totally believe that kids were evil from the outset, and then came up to me after watching my kids one time, like, hey, yeah, I see exactly what you're talking about at this point. And by the way, my kids are pretty well behaved and pretty sweet. They're also selfish and self-centered, and their universe revolves around them. Right, here's the deal, right? Most of our issues, right, connected to spiritual issues, connected to relational issues, is because we've allowed ourselves to find our source of information and identity outside from the collective love and unity within the body of Christ. Now, the problem is, and this is, and this is, a, this is a, a genuine critique of the church, the church is messed up at times, right? But the call is, is that if we are consistently reconciling ourselves to one another, that the church, because the Spirit is at work, because the Father is at work, because Jesus is the cornerstone, the church will eventually get it right. That God will not stand for it if his people are working towards reconciliation with one another. If any of you guys came in here and just were like an outside consultant and looked at our church or probably any of the churches in, in Gainesville, you would see that the church has a problem and it's known as the 80-20 rule for those of you guys that are connected to business. And what that means is that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. 80% are partaking but not participating. Do you know what we call that in the world of kinesiology, which was my, which was my major in undergrad? Atrophy. Right? Your spiritual muscles are weak because you're consuming, but you aren't working them at all. Your spirituality is weak because it's, it's not being challenged. It's not being told to be used. Right? And so you're like, like me when I eat too much Taco Bell, but then don't exercise later. Right? I'm atrophying, and I'm gorging myself, but I'm not doing anything to then work that out with one another. Meanwhile, 20% are partaking and doing all the work, and now they're exhausted. And what Paul is saying is if you want to fully experience this, people say this all the time, right? I, I, I just want to experience the presence of God. I, I just want to know him. Paul is saying that if you want to fully experience the power of the gospel and the working of it in your life, then you must be involved in a local church. It's not up for debate, guys. It's right there in Scripture. You don't have to like what I'm saying, but what Paul is saying, if you really want to walk with Jesus, know Jesus, grow in Christ, Grow to know the Father. Right? See yourself sanctified. It is impossible for that to happen for you apart from being connected to community. It's impossible. And not surprisingly, right, we see all the issues that we see around us because the, the trajectory of our culture is moving away from being plugged into community. Let me just say something too. If you hear me up here saying like, you need to get involved in the church, like maybe I should get involved with the church. One, yes, you should. Two, we would love that here. Right? We're gonna have a, a, a service fair after church giving you opportunities to use your gifts. 
to, to, to use the unique gifts that God has given you within the body of Christ. Right? We would welcome you to become a covenant member here at Aletheia. Say, hey, I, I'm in this with the other covenant members here to make much of Jesus together. Right? We would encourage you to be a part of a community group so that people can be praying for you, that you can be known, that people can be holding you accountable, and you can be learning more and growing more in Christ together. We would welcome you to serve and use your spiritual gifts both on Sundays but also in other arenas around our city. One of the biggest issues we have here at Aletheia is that 80% of you guys come here and consume, but then you don't ever give back. And so the 20% is left to pick up the pieces and just try to make this thing happen on Sundays and during the week. Therefore, the city doesn't get served because there's 20% trying to hold up 80%. To use a term that I've used in the past, a lot of you guys treat this church and this city and this community in Gainesville like a prostitute. You come in here and you use her for four years and then you leave. I got a bunch of really like sullen looks at me right now. But the reality is, is I've lived here long enough to have seen it and I know it's true and the reason it's digging at you is because you know it too. Students, I'm talking to you right now. This city is a lot bigger than 8th Avenue, 75, Williston Road, and Main Street. There's a lot more going on in this city. And God has called you to be an agent of change in your context and in your community. And it needs to happen through the church. So partner with a local church so that you can be a part of the mission of God and what he's doing in this city. Right, the questions maybe to ponder and ask yourself right now, right? Think, think through this, right? If we want to help serve this city both physically and spiritually, you should be asking questions like, who am I serving? Just on a consistent basis, who, who am I serving and, and working for without expecting anything in return? And, and in doing that, who am I pursuing in my life right now to see them reconcile to God? Like, believe it or not, you have a classmate who probably doesn't know Jesus. You probably have a coworker that doesn't know Jesus. You probably have a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. You probably have a running partner or a friend at your CrossFit class or your friend at the gym or someone on your intramural team who doesn't know Jesus. And God has placed you in this city, in this time, to know them and be an agent and a minister of the reconciliation of God. If you don't read me, believe me, go read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That is the call that God has placed on all of us. Because God is calling people to himself and he wants to use his church as the vehicle for which that is happening. And so, so point number one, right? We need to be the church. We need to be the people who are on mission, serving, surrendering our own uh, preferences, passions, desires, selfishness, surrendering those things for the sake of Jesus' mission, for the sake of the gospel. Now the, now, the second point that we see in these verses, right, so our, our second action item that we're going to kind of be called to is that we should be striving for unity as the body of Christ because that unity articulates something to the world around us that's very unique and very powerful. Look over at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 with me. 
Right, look, at, look at what Paul says in verse 10. He's talking about the church and the power of the church, and look what he says when he gets to verse 10. So that through the church, what? The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I mean, that God has chosen the church to be the agent or the vehicle in which he displays his wisdom, his love, and his power. The church displays God's wisdom because it's the multi-ethnic, unified, reconciled family of God. It's different than any other organization out there. And, and, and let's just be honest for a second, guys, because issues of reconciliation and race are a very hot-button issue right now in our country. And the reason they are is because unity is difficult. It just is. I would go so far as to say that apart from God, true unity is impossible. I, tr I truly believe that. I, I think we can get glimpses of what unity looks like, but at the, at the end of the day, true unity is impossible apart from God. But it is possible. How many of you guys were at the game yesterday? The, uh, uh, about half the room. How many, how many of you guys looked out on that crowd and saw people that looked different than you and thought differently than you? Every hand should be up, by the way. Right? Every hand that was in the stadium should have been able to see that. Right? If you go to a football game, if you go to a political rally, if you're connected to the Alumni Association at UF, right, people look differently, think differently, and yet they have these common things about them that draw them in unity. How much more so, then, should the church display that unity? Think about it for a second. The person sitting next to you might look different from you in here. They might be at a different stage of life than you. They might live in a different place than you. They might have grown up differently than you. But if you look next to them, if they are a Christian and you are a Christian, here are some things that are true of you. You are in Christ, and because you are in Christ, you have a common dad, you have a common story, and you have a common goal. I mean, what, what more is there? You have an identity, you have a reason for living, and you have a purpose. All, all, the hallmark, all the hallmarks for drawing you together in unity over anything else that might create disunity. And so the question then is, why can't the church figure this out? Because the reality is, is the church has often been a place where this doesn't get figured out. I'm gonna, I've got four thoughts on this. You can write them down, but there are things that I would like you to keep in the forefront of your mind as when I, when I give us a call to response a little bit later to search these areas in your own heart and ask God to shine a light in on them so that we might press forward for, un, for unity and for the sake of the gospel together. All right, so four things that at least I see as barriers for unity. There's probably somebody that's written a book that's got like nine or 10, but these are Kevin's four, okay? Number one, pride. Right, one of my favorite sports announcers on the radio, whenever he's arguing with somebody, um, he, he's got this very abrasive personality, but he does a lot of research on what he's talking about. And one of the things he always says when he's arguing with another sportscaster or whatever else, he says, you just want to be right, you don't want to get it right. I would say that's true of probably just about all of us in this room. We want to be right, we don't want to get it right. right it, do you guys know that it's possible to argue... Uh, convincingly and passionately about things that are very, very wrong. Yeah. If you've ever been a philosoph in a philosophy class, that's what's going on in there. 
There's people that are very convincing, arguing over things that are actually very wrong. Guys, pride is the enemy of unity. Because by definition, in pride, you are forcing someone else to be subservient to you. And nothing that I see in these verses says that any one of us within the family of God is subservient to one another, but we're subservient to who? The Father. We are subservient to the Trinity and serving them because we are underneath Jesus, the cornerstone, and we are allowing the Spirit to work through us because we've been reconciled to the Father. So, so number one, right, what, what areas of my life is pride contributing to a lack of unity within the church? Number two, preference. As my, my friend and pastor uh, up in uh, Virginia, Josh Soto, used to say, the church's number one problem is a theology of preference. No, and, and, and some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. It means you care more about what kind of music is played, what Bible is read, what people are wearing, what time the church starts, how nice the chairs that you're sitting are in, uh, what kind of food they have out. List all the different things that churches do to attract people. You care more about those things than being a part of a group that's actually on mission to see the world reconciled to God. You have a theology of preference. My, he, he told me that when he, his church and another church, the pastors agreed, hey, it's better for us to come together as two separate churches and marry these things together for the sake of the gospel. And he had this church that loved him and was on mission. And then the other guy, he had this church that loved him and, and, and their pastoral team were on mission. And when they brought those two churches together, guess what happened? Families started fighting. Because they cared more about the way they used to do church instead of figuring out how to do it together as a new family and making much of Jesus together. They cared more about their preferences than they cared about the gospel. If you can learn this now, life will be a lot easier for you. Living out a life sold out to Jesus means that sometimes you need to be uncomfortable. You need to be in a room where you don't look like everybody else. You need to be in a room where you don't think like everyone else. You need to be in a room where you're going to be challenged. It's just the reality that laying down your preferences sometimes is going to be better. Here, guys, I, I talked about this a couple months ago. Some of the songs we sing in here on a Sunday morning, I, I, I just do not like them. I mean, and that's fair, right? Do I have to like every song we sing? Probably not. You know, there's that one song, right? You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are, right? I'll, I will make fun of this song to the day I die. Some, some of you guys love that song. You do. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that song. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to tell you I don't like it, but I'm going to lay down my preferences and I'm going to allow the people leading worship at Aletheia Church to continue to sing it. Because it allows them to worship the God who reconciled them. Right? Sometimes we lay down our preferences for the sake of the family. Number three. One of the barriers to unity that I see is we lack empathy. Right? Paul calls us to bear one another's burdens so here's, here's the easiest way to, to cut hostility out of a conversation or a fight. Stop posting memes and start listening. 
no one's mind was ever changed by a, a gif, jif, whatever y'all want to call them. They're, just not, they're, just not, they're not. Believe it or not, I have never posted something on Facebook and had some politician contact me and be like, you know what, I was thinking this, but then I saw your opinion on Facebook. I'm going to change policy. I just want you to know that. Ne- never have had that happen. I can't even get my own parents to change their mind on Facebook. And they can't get me to change mine. Right? The reality is, is that to do the hard work of being unified and seeing reconciliation is that instead we get together face to face and we talk. Just, just as a quick aside, some of you guys, like I, I've dealt with a number of you college students fighting with one another over the years. Stop having hard conversations over text. Just stop. Because guess what happens? You assume, the best, you assume the worst of the person on the other side and then you read tone that's not there. That'll just save you a lot of heartache. If you need to have a tough conversation with somebody, do it face-to-face, right? So that tone and non-verbal communication can be put on display, okay? That's free advice. Take it. Even if you do not agree with somebody, you can empathize with their vantage point, Right? Like the biggest thing I've tried to understand in seeing um, all of the, the, the backlash and, and fighting over race over the last probably 24 months in this country is, hey, I grew up in a very specific set of circumstances as a white man, as majority culture, in a small town in America. Maybe the way I view the earth isn't the same way that someone else views the earth. Maybe I should ask somebody that comes from a different place than me and hear their side of the story instead of just assuming that I have all the answers and have everything figured out. And guess what? I've learned a lot. I've learned that some of the ways that I viewed the world around me would be confirmed by other people that came from minority culture. And guess what else I've learned? A lot of the ways I view the earth and a lot of the ways I view our country and the experiences I face both within the church and outside the church are not the same experiences someone else had. Do you know how I learned that? Getting in conversations with people and talking with them. And being open and upfront and honest about what's going on. So barriers to unity, pride, preference, lack of empathy, and the last one, unforgiveness. If you want to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 with me. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. I'm not going to go on for very long about this, but that verse is not a suggestion. It's a command. Hey, I think you might want to consider forgiving somebody. Not what the text says. If you are in Christ, you forgive others. Why? Because Christ forgave you. You were unworthy, and God declared you worthy. You extend forgiveness to somebody else in their unworthiness because you deem them worthy and valuable because God deems them worthy and valuable. That's how forgiveness works. A lot of of us, right, we think forgiveness is penance. Okay, uh, I'll forgive you, but you need to do X, Y, Z for me so, I, I, so that I know you really realize how bad you hurt me. I cannot find that description of forgiveness anywhere in Scripture. Do you want to know the example I see that Jesus gives? He tells his disciples to turn the other cheek. Right? Be willing to be slapped again. That's what forgiveness is. That kind of forgiveness is radical and looks different to a world who is not reconciled to God or to one another. 
And if the church lives this out, guys, I promise you, we will see radical things happen in our time. If the church can understand their position with God and their identity with him and that they are family with one another, we will see huge things happen for the gospel in our lifetime. Right? If I understand Paul correctly here, he is saying our gospel family is bigger than any earthly affiliation we could ever have. That our church family is more important than our sports teams. Guys, if you hate a Seminole simply because he's a Seminole, even if they're a Christian, you got a problem. I got a gator and a hurricane sitting right here on the front row together. That's right. If you view someone of your own race as being more important and more tied to you than a member of the church family, you've got a problem. And that goes for any race. If you view your political affiliation as having more connectedness to you than somebody in your church family, you've got a problem. If you view someone with the same economic standing as you, having more in common with you and more to walk alongside in life than someone in your church family, you have a problem. You need to repent. Guys, the gospel is greater than any division or wall we can set up. And our new identity as reconciled sons and daughters changes everything but it comes at a cost. You're gonna have to surrender some of those things that I talked about as barriers earlier. And so here's how I I would encourage us to respond. Number one, if you are not a follower of Jesus here this morning, let let me just say something to you, right? Right now, right, according, according to God, you are alienated and separated from the God and creator of the universe. And every human being starts in that place. It doesn't matter if you were born in Asia, Europe, Africa, South America, North America, Antarctica, or somewhere on the moon. Doesn't doesn't matter. All of us were born into sin, and because of that sin, we are separated from God. But God demonstrated his own love towards a rebellious and sinful people that he sent his son to die in our place for our rebellion. Jesus. Some 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked this earth, lived a life and a standard in accordance to, to God's law, and then he subjected himself to death on a cross, which was the most brutal punishment, any execution that anyone could come up with. The Roman crucifix was the most brutal execution that any government has ever devised, and Jesus subjected himself to it to pay the penalty for our rebellion towards God. And in that, he was buried and rose again three days later to prove that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. And he offers you and I and commands us and calls us to respond to God and submit to him. And in trusting in Christ and believing in what he's done for us, we are given a new identity. We move from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. It doesn't, isn't that crazy? You move from an enemy of the God and creator of the universe to not just being a friend, but being a son or daughter. 
You're invited into the family in Christ. So my first charge would be, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, and you are not in him, let today be the day that you submit to him. That you place your trust in him for your salvation and your reconciliation to the Father. Now, if you are a Christian here this morning, this next charge is to you. Because God has reconciled us and because you have submitted to God and you at least intellectually and in your heart have said, okay, my vertical relationship with God has been reconciled. Now you need to start moving forward in horizontal reconciliation. That's the charge to you. And so here's how you do that. Number one, be the church. Join a church Serve in a church and be an agent of reconciliation to those around you because someone around you does not know Jesus and needs to hear about him. It's that simple. God, here, here's, here, here's what I'm going to say to this. That church does not need to be a Lathia church. There are plenty of gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, God-fearing, mission-driven churches in this city. Be a part of one of them. I am friends with many of the pastors of many of the churches in this city. And if you say, Aletheia is not the place for me to do that, then by all means, come up and talk to me and I will gladly point you to another church where you feel like you can get plugged in and be on mission. But do not waste your time here not being a part of the family of God. This is the most transient city I think I have ever been in. You have a brief window here. Be a part of the church, the family of God while you're here. Whether you're a student, a, 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 a young professional in the city, or you've been living here your whole life, be a part of the church. And number two, and being a part of the church, fight for that unity. I would just encourage you, as, as we have a time of response here in just a minute, check your apathy or your ignorance at the door and start praying to ask God to shine some truth into your heart. Ask yourself honest questions about divisions with others, and then if God reveals them to you, repent if necessary. If you care more about your politics than you care about the mission of the gospel, repent. The good, here's the good news, guys. We all have, the, the reality is, is we all have things that we tie ourselves to that cause division. We do. I'm gonna, can I be honest with you guys for a second? I don't want to sit next to a cowboy fan ever. I'm dead serious. You think I'm joking. My dad taught me to hate the Dallas Cowboys and anyone associated with them. And some of you guys are like, that's so stupid. Yes, it is. It is so stupid. But starting from a young age that was born into me, there's my parents just like, mm -mm. My mom tried to help because she was a lowly Bucks fan. She tried to fix it, but it, but it got, just got buried deep into the recesses of my selfishness. And you know, I can say this wholeheartedly, it wasn't until I came to know Jesus in college that I would actually associate and saw somebody that was a Cowboys fan as my friend. Some of you guys are laughing. I'm bearing my soul to you guys right now and you're laughing at me. Right? Is that any different than you doing that with somebody who has a different skin pigmentation than you? Is my story any different and stupid and ignorant than someone with a different skin pigmentation, different level of education, or different preferences somewhere else. Is it? No, it's all just as dumb. Right? Ask 
the Lord to do a work in you and in that reconciliation, drive you to repentance and reconciliation horizontally. And I would encourage you as an action item, develop a friendship with somebody that has a different viewpoint than you. Get to know them, love them, care for them, and confess to God and others when you see your pride and your preferences rearing their head. Might we ask God as we are reconciled to him that he might give us the strength to be reconciled to one another. I'm gonna invite the band to come up here and somebody would turn down the lights for me. I'm gonna pray for you guys. And here's what I would invite you guys to do. The, the rest of our service this morning is gonna be a time of response. And so we're gonna invite you guys first to respond to, to the word of God in prayer and confession and repentance and then by taking communion. We take communion here every week. You can come up and take it as you feel led. Um, we do incantation here, meaning you can take uh, the elements and dip them in the juice and then head back to your seat. But I would encourage you to pray, to ask God to search your heart for these areas where reconciliation has not yet happened horizontally and to move you there and to start moving away from Facebook or Twitter and start moving to action. And then as you do that, right, we're gonna continue to respond to God. You can respond to God in song. You can respond to God with giving of your gifts. We have some offering baskets in the back or we can, you can give online if that's something you wanna do. We would ask that you would worship and respond in the giving of your time, your gifts, and your talents. And then lastly, right, as you're singing, as you're praying, seek to get involved in community in Gainesville. Whether it's here at Aletheia Church, there's gonna be plenty of opportunities in the back after church to find ways to get involved in the mission of the gospel here in this city. If you are vitally involved in a parachurch organization or something else already, please communicate that to us so we can be praying for you. If you were involved in Young Life or Crew or the BCM or Navigators or InterVarsity or one of the other 1,500 parachurch organizations we have in this city and in this campus, we want to pray for you. We want to know what is going on. And we want to be behind you because we want to be behind you as the big C church, the family of God. Will you bow your heads and pray with me and ask that God might make this a reality for us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that you reconciled us to you. Meet us in this space, Lord. Convict us of sin. And drive us in our repentance to seek reconciliation with one another. Whether it's with our spouse, our neighbor, person sitting next to us, our coworker, may we see that reconciliation as your desire for each and every one of us. Seeing first and foremost people far from you coming to be a part of your family in unity within that family. God, we desire that. We ask that you make that a reality and I ask this all in Jesus' good.